your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community. Your host is Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. This hour is designed to inspire, inform, and to help you live better with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, a new internet radio show that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, an international nonprofit organization dedicated to providing support, education, and hope to people with cancer and their loved ones at over 100 locations worldwide and online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. Before we begin today's topic, let's move to a segment we call Cancer in the News, which highlights the latest cancer headlines. I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is today's Cancer in the News. Researchers recently reported that three weeks of radiation treatment is equally as effective as the usual course of five weeks or more for women with early-stage breast cancers. The results were derived from a study which monitored a large group of patients for 12 years and revealed that radiation schedules can safely be shortened and ultimately make life easier for patients and improve the quality of their lives. The purpose of radiation is to keep cancer from coming back in the same breast where it first occurred by killing any two cells that may have evaded surgery and chemotherapy. Currently, a typical schedule for breast cancer patients undergoing radiation treatments involve five to seven weeks of daily treatments. Experts say that the new findings from this study could change the standard of care in the United States and would provide women with early-stage breast cancer a welcome opportunity to finish their treatments faster. Researchers also hope that the shorter treatment schedule will help make radiation available to more women. Currently, about 20 to 30 percent of women in North America who need radiation treatment for breast cancer will skip it. Some women who could have a lumpectomy plus radiation choose mastectomy instead simply to avoid radiation because they live too far from a clinic to travel back and forth for all the treatments. Although some medical centers in the United States already offer these shorter treatments, more and more doctors are now considering their implementation. On average, approximately 180,000 women develop breast cancer each year in the United States and most require radiation. While shorter radiation treatments are not right for every woman, there are now choices where none existed before, and experts encourage patients to be proactive and ask their doctors about the various treatment options available to them. In other news, researchers who performed another study on breast cancer recently announced that hormone replacement therapy, which raises breast cancer risk for some women, appears to reduce the risk for those with a certain genetic mutation linked to the disease. Researchers looked at the hormone replacement therapy, or HRT, in postmenopausal women with a BRCA1 gene mutation that greatly increases their chances of developing breast cancer. Among 472 women from nine countries, those who used hormone replacement therapy therapy were 42% less likely to develop breast cancer than those who did not. Many women with a BRCA1 mutation choose to have their ovaries removed in order to reduce the risk of getting breast cancer, but the operation brings on menopause. HRT can relieve menopausal symptoms such as hot flashes and night sweats. Earlier studies raised alarms about HRT because it raised the risk of breast cancer, stroke, and other heart conditions. But the impact on the risk of breast cancer in postmenopausal women with a BRCA1 gene mutation was undetermined. 
The findings from the current study is encouraging news to women with the mutation who want to have their ovaries removed before menopause to lower their risk of getting breast cancer or ovarian cancer, but are worried about using HRT to relieve the menopausal symptoms that will follow. I'm Bill Schaefer, and that's today's Cancer in the News. September is Leukemia and Lymphoma Awareness Month, and on today's episode, we will focus on these blood cancers and talk about a few treatment options available for these cancers that are, frankly, on the rise. Over the last 25 years, the incidence of leukemia has increased by 88%, and cases of lymphoma, which includes all types of the disease, have increased by 87%. We're going to talk a little bit today about these dramatic increases, but beyond the scientific components of a leukemia or lymphoma diagnosis, there's a whole other side to coping with these diseases. We have a wonderful panel here with us today who will shed some light on how to do just that. First, we have Chuck Shepper. Chuck is a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. He is the Chief Operating Officer of Great American Financial Resources in Cincinnati, Ohio, and he is also the Chair of the Wellness Community's National Board of Directors. Thanks for joining us, Chuck. Thanks for having me, Kim. Uh, next, we have Julie Shepard, Chuck's wife, who, in addition to uh, being a caregiver, is also a retired counselor, a community volunteer, and a coach and advocate for cancer patients and their families. Welcome, Julie. Glad to be here. Thanks. And last but not least, we are joined by Dr. Lee Nadler, who actually treated Chuck. Uh, Dr. Nadler is the Senior Vice President of Experimental Medicine at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston and the Director of the Dana-Farber Center for Clinical and Translational Research. Thank you, Lee, for joining us today. My pleasure. So I'm grateful to have all of you uh, here um, on our panel discussion today. Let's jump right in. Chuck, I, I'd like to start with you because I think it helps to really just kind of start with a, with a, a personal story and a personal experience for our audience. Um, go, go back, Chuck, to the day when you were diagnosed with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Tell us, tell us what that was like for you. What went through your mind when you got that diagnosis? Well, um, there were actually several stages in, um, to, to get to the official diagnosis. Uh, um, at, the story kind of begins March 25th, 1992, and uh, I'd noticed a lump on my neck, and the doctor had said, I think you should see an oncologist, and it took a couple seconds for that word to register, and I said, you know, you mean cancer, and it was sort of immediate shock and fear and anxiety and and uh, confusion, and then over the course of the next several weeks, I was kind of going back and forth, thinking I had it, thinking I didn't have it, through all sorts of series of tests, but then... You know, I got the official diagnosis, and uh, again, it's it's a lot of anxiety. Um, I have to tell you, um, when I met uh, Dr. Nadler, um, it's kind of you remember these dates and these uh, uh, specifics, but it was April 17th, uh, happened to be Good Friday and Passover, uh, both on the on the same day, and um, we went in to see Lee, and after spending three hours with us, just um, talking about the disease, explaining that um, um, there was just such a, a level of confidence that I had in him. I knew that the the options and the um, diagnosis or prognosis was still um, that was it was I was realistic about what you know that I might die, but I knew I was um, I had the best doctor and I had the best uh, opportunity for success. And at that point, I really. And there was a calm that came over me, and, and it was um, just, let's get on with it now. So I was prepared at that point. But over the course of those probably, you know, three or four or five weeks, um, 
the, the emotions were um, all over the lot. And um, but um, and I can say I, I feel I'm here today because of uh, the other man on the line here, Dr. <laughs> Lee Nadler. Um, not not a bad not a bad endorsement, Lee. <laughs> uh, he, Chuck always says the wrong too much, but that's okay. Makes me blush. Go ahead. It's not true, but that's all right. <laughs> Chuck, um, do, when you were doing your, you, you know, you you just said in your comments, you, you it, despite the fact that you found a, you know, a wonderful doctor and um, that you had a care plan, that um, you actually thought that you you might die from this disease. Is that something that was told to you? Is that something that you had garnered from your reading and your research? Or, you know, how did you come to that place in your mind that that was a real possibility? Actually, I remember sitting in the doctor's office um, in our, uh, in Cincinnati here and seeing a pamphlet that talked about uh, lymphoma. And in it they said, well, non-Hodgkin's was a fatal disease. Mm-hmm. That was sort of my first introduction. And then, you know, just doing some research. And this was before all the you know, opportunities on the Internet, but uh, the statistics were not good. And so, you know, I, and I had, you know, the the scans and things that I was going through indicated I had tumors everywhere, and and I didn't really understand the disease. And, uh, frankly, it wasn't until Lee sort of explained, you know, the fact that I had a lot of um, tumors around my pancreas, as an example, didn't mean that I had pancreatic cancer. It was a different approach. So I think my education grew over that time frame, but it wasn't until um, we really, I mean, I went in when we saw Lee, I had three pages of typewritten notes and he just kind of laughed and said, I can see, you know, you're an information seeker. And he did spend the next uh, three hours probably um, answering every question. And, and it was at that point that I knew um, I was going to beat this disease. And, um, or at least face the reality that if I wasn't, I was given it the best shot possible, and I was, I was. Um, there was a great comfort that came with that, and so then it was just focusing on the treatment. You know, we're we're gonna uh, take a break here in a minute or two. But Lee, tell, tell, take us back to that day when when uh, when Chuck came to you, and tell us a little bit about that experience. And is there a is there a way that you approach new patients when they come to your office to really talk about this disease? Well, you know, I you know, I'm not the standard oncologist, and Chuck's not the standard patient. Yeah. I'll just tell you briefly that, you know, Chuck did his homework. When he opened the textbook in 1992 to the disease he had, follicular lymphoma, the cure rate was zero. And that's what the world thought, that the number of people who could be cured would be zero, that the disease was relentless, and if you looked at 10 years, 50% were dead. And if you looked at 20 years, 90% was dead. Mm. And there was no place where it said cure. Yeah. That's not who Chuck Shepard was. I mean, <laughs> how old were you, Chuck, when you came to see me? Uh, 39. Okay. Well, you understand why. And yeah. that's what I was seeing. I know we're going to break in a minute, but, um, you know, the, when a 39-year-old shows up, um, at that exact point, we had been doing very expensive experimental therapy for about the last decade before that, trying to figure out how to turn the incurable into a curable disease. So to be quite honest, uh, Julie Chuck and I entered a partnership, mm. but it wasn't just coming to get treatment. It wasn't that they flew all the way from Cincinnati to Boston to find a good doctor. They flew to Boston to find somebody where they thought that they could, where he could live a normal life. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that was the issue at that point. And, 
knew what had walked into my life for those years before that as a lab scientist, and I developed these ideas in my laboratory. Um, very, very, very um, committed people came and tried something that just wasn't done by anybody else. I mean, Chuck had a bone marrow transplant that was extremely experimental as the first treatment in his disease. Not, not when he relapsed, not when he was in a desperate strait, but straight out the beginning to go for cure. And he obviously had some confidence in, in, uh, in your advice on that, Lee. Well, well we, Chuck's a smart person. I mean, he's a businessman. Um, we had data. Yeah. We had treated people, and we had turned the few the reasons why Chuck trusted us is we had people who, were, who had failed everything, who were surviving and looked like they might be cured, but our toxicity rate, you know, people dying of transplant where it had been published 10 years before that 30% people died and 50% relapsed, we were looking at that we had maybe one or two in a hundred that died, and we had uh, people living when everyone else said they were going to die. Now, we didn't have 20 and 30 years survival. As a matter of fact, we're just getting that now. But at that point in 1992, where Chuck and Julie sat down and said, I'm 39, I'm supposed to live 40 years, and 10 is not okay. Not okay. So we're going to Not okay. A- we're going to take a quick break right now. We're talking about uh, leukemia and lymphoma. We have a, uh, a great panel of folks with us today, and we are going to be back in just a minute to pick up this conversation. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health & Wellness. Holistic health and well-being covers many facets, including stress, time management, weight loss, cardiovascular training, and aging. And that's just to name a few. Your life without limits will help to sort it all out for you. Join host Joe Sardi and the top minds in holistic health and well-being for an educational and entertaining hour. Listen for Your Life Without Limits. Heard every Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly. 
especially speaking about cancer. Uh, I'm Kim Tebaldo, and today we're talking about leukemia and lymphoma. Uh, September is actually Leukemia and Lymphoma Awareness Month. I- I'm joined today by Chuck Shepard, a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor and chair of the Wellness Community National Board, uh, Julie Shepard, Chuck's wife and uh, caregiver, and Dr. Lee Nadler, Chuck's oncologist. Um, and we've been having a, a really a great conversation, and I love the conversation we're having about the, the, the relationship that you all established building this team. And Chuck said, you know what, I'm not going to accept this diagnosis. I'm not going to take it. Um, and we're going to take this, this team approach to how we're going to face this disease. Uh, when, when I first introduced the topic today, um, you know, really noted that the incidence of leukemia and lymphoma are on the rise. Uh, Lee, since your specialty is lymphoma, tell us why are we seeing such an increase in the incidence of this type of cancer? What are some of the theories or some of the data as to, as to why this is happening? Well, the, the short answer is we don't know. We really don't know. They're the best studies of, you know, what causes this disease um, really don't come up with a virus. They don't come up with a, a way to eat. Um, you know, the, we know that um, farmers who spray insecticide have a much higher incidence of lymphoma. Um, we know that some people who came back from Vietnam who were exposed to Agent Orange had follicular lymphoma, but we don't know in our society today what to change. Mm. You know, one of the reasons why we think there might be a peak, you know, you have to remember when we're talking about from the wellness community that we're going to see a lot more cancer, and it may not be that, um, you know, more people, uh, new people are getting cancer. Um, I'm a baby boomer. I was born in 1947, Mm -hmm. and there are 78 million of us, and we're moving into our 60s, and that's when people get cancer. Now, those people... You know, there was this big break in having children, but now there's an awful lot of my children are in their 30s, yes. and there's lots of them. Mm-hmm. And so when you put these population, you know, spikes in, yes. you suddenly think that there's more cases. There are, but it's not more cases per unit population. Mm-hmm. So it's not clear why. Uh, I wish we could tell you why. What I can tell you is that, and we should talk about it, is how much the world changed since 1992 on how we diagnose and how we treat. And, you know, we look a lot at how much the world has changed since the wellness community was founded in 1982, when cancer was still very much considered a death sentence. It was not something that you talked about. We didn't have radio shows and and TV shows talking about cancer in 1982. I don't want to tell you how old I am, but... uh, um, I was doing transplants in 1982 <laughs> and taking care of patients. So yeah, yeah, but you know, I mean, you know, again, we talk about you talked about the increase in the population, but look, you know, 1982 there were fewer than five million cancer survivors in the U.S. Right. Today there are more than 12 million cancer survivors in the U.S. And growing every day. And growing every day. So we're seeing increase in incidence, uh, but we're also starting to see a, a decrease in mortality rates. Uh, from cancer. Now let's let, let's go back to our previous conversation about about uh, Chuck and the treatment options that you all had discussed uh, for Chuck. I know you talked about a bone marrow transplant as a first line treatment option, and that was an experimental treatment option. Um, we talk a lot about the importance of clinical trials at the wellness community, the importance of experimental treatment. Tell us about that decision uh, at that time. So do you want me to tell you why I offered it to him at yes, that time? Uh, yeah, Lee, please, yeah. So, so just very briefly, um, the standard of care for people with what Chuck had, uh, established by a brilliant name, guy uh, at Stan- Stanford, basically said, 
watch and wait patients. Don't treat them unless they need to be treated, unless their disease is going forward. And his particular disease, Chuck's disease, these follicular lymphomas, they would wax and wane. They would come and go. But Chuck and the patients that we were willing to look at, Chuck's disease was growing and growing and growing, and he had a lot of it. Mm-hmm. And it was pretty clear that uh, his was a different variety in a very young person. So to take a 39-year-old person and basically accept the idea that the patient was going to die wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. The second problem was that the standard of care therapy, no matter what people did, people relapsed. Mm-hmm. So regular treatment wasn't going to cure anybody. So we now knew by the time Chuck walked in the door by 1992, because we had started doing actually what we did to him in 1988, Arnold Freeman and I did this, that we already knew that we could take patients who were newly diagnosed with aggressive disease, give them six cycles of regular chemotherapy. Mm -hmm. They would not go into complete remission, or if they did, it was very transient. And then consolidate with an experimental therapy, a bone marrow transplant, which was very different, and I'll tell you about that in a second. And then patients could tolerate it, but we had had patients as as early as, you know, uh, eight or ten years before who had failed everything with follicular lymphoma, who we did transplant for last resort, and some of them were surviving with no disease at all. So now they're seven, eight, nine, ten years out. So we said, wait a minute, if they were at the end of the line and we could get them disease-free at eight or ten years, couldn't we turn an incurable disease into a curable disease? And so, you know, this isn't for everybody to walk into something that's brand new. It takes uh, Chuck and Julie to basically say, these are the odds, this is where we are, and Chuck can answer how difficult it was to make a decision yeah. between something that was so radical yes. and conventional therapy. Let's talk about that, Chuck. Tell us, a, tell us a little bit about what that what that felt like for you, because obviously, you know, you were taking an approach with something that was that was unconventional, that was a pretty aggressive uh, approach. And you know, how did you how did you think about that? How did you make that decision and, and, and process that? You know, it was. Um... You know, I was charged up by it. I mean, it was like, um, you know, it's the fact that non-Hodgkin's was, you know, worse. I mean, Hodgkin's had become curable, almost curable at the time, you know, I was diagnosed. And and, uh, I used to joke that, you know, I got the the tough one uh, because I was a tough guy or whatever. But (laughs) I think it just, you know, I had such confidence in Lee when we were there. And, I mean, he he explained the disease. He explained that, you know, chemo is most effective against the faster-growing cells. And it, you know, makes sense instead of, you know, until it builds up all this, um, you know, resistance to the disease to to attack it aggressively. And and, um, I, I, I just had a real confidence. I was looking for an aggressive approach. I just, I, couldn't see myself doing the watch and wait, mm-hmm. and I understand now. I mean, the the in fact, Lee and I we've to, we've talked about this over the years that the the strategies are are changing. Right, you know, it's becoming more of a um, chronic disease, but um, it you know it just it fit my personality. You were to, ready to, to get just aggressive. Be aggressive, and again, I I knew the realities. I mean, he didn't 
pull any punches. And yeah. Julie can add some comments yeah, about I was gonna say, let's the, just pull Julie the reality of, of what we were facing. But I, I just I thought it was the right thing to do um, for both Julie and me, and and I knew I had the support system, um, you know, to to get through the treatment. And you know, if it didn't work out, I, f- I felt comfortable knowing I was doing everything I could, everything to, you could to take the best shot at a long-term survival. So, Julie, we certainly know that cancer does not just affect the patient. It affects the, the, the spouses, the family members, the caregivers. I know you guys come from a big family. Um, right. t- tell us what you went through during this diagnosis. What was it like for you? What were some of the adjustments that you okay. had to make, both kind of practical adjustments and kind of you know, mental and emotional adjustments after Chuck was diagnosed? Sure. Well, I think initially there's the shock and worry, and it was just very, very frightening. And I had trouble sleeping. I wasn't sure if I could express my feelings to Chuck because I didn't want him to have any more to worry about. You know, it's hard to hear the C word. I mean, we couldn't even say cancer. And um, before getting educated about the disease, there was, you know, a tremendous amount of fear and worry. And uh and I'll have to admit, I had, I thought, gosh, am I going to have to plan a funeral here? Mm-hmm. And um, so anyway, after meeting with Dr. Nadler and talking to him, I remember something uh, that Dr. Nadler said. It was describing treatment and what Chuck would go through and that for a lot of the bone marrow transplant, he would be on medication and not remember a whole lot. But he said, Chuck, this is something you won't remember, but something, Julie, that you won't forget. You won't ever forget. And it's true. I remember every detail and, you know, seeing your spouse and loved one go through something like this is very difficult. And I think when there's a cancer diagnosis, you're going through the can- down this cancer road from two different perspectives. One, the patient who's fighting for their life and the caregiver who has that fear of being left behind and, you know, total helplessness. So um, some of the things that, you know, I had to be concerned about were work coverage. Mm -hmm. You know, initially in those first few three, four, five weeks, like Chuck was saying, didn't know week to week what was going on, and there was lots of uncertainty and a loss of control and hard to plan ahead and not sure how Chuck would be feeling. And so, you know, that all was very difficult and um, difficult. I remember after transplant, Chuck received six months of chemotherapy in the Cincinnati area, and then we went to Boston for his bone marrow transplant. But after the bone marrow transplant, at that time, there were lots of precautions about keeping the patient safe from any kind of germs or disease. Or And so I was so paranoid about that and germs and food preparation. Yeah. I mean, I was making ice cubes you know, with bottled water, and I was alcohol swabbing eggs before I served them, and I wouldn't let other people put their hands in the bread bag or the, you know, cracker bag or whatever, and um, so, you know, it was quite stressful, and I mean, even eating meals, we were used to having nice meals together, and we ended up eating separately because, you know, sometimes when a chemotherapy patient is ready to eat. They want something right now. So I and he couldn't tolerate the smell of food cooking, and so I would have to heat something up really, really quickly, and get it to him, and then make something for myself later. So those are just a few of the things that happen when you're the caregiver. And were, were you? We're going to take a break in just a, a minute, Julie. But were you there? Were you up there at Dana Farber when Chuck was going through this treatment? Oh yes, yes, yeah. I was there, and um, I would be at the hospital from about. 
10 o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night. And, I mean, we did have friends and relatives visiting us at that time, but uh, it's, it's, it's tough. It's very tough to watch somebody go through this. And, um, but the hospital staff was great, and, you know, there was lots of support. And, of course, yeah. Lee was wonderful so yeah we're gonna um we're going to take a uh, we're gonna take a, a quick break here we're, we're we're talking about leukemia and lymphoma we have uh some wonderful guests with us here today uh, chuck shepard and julie talking about the chuck's experience with cancer dr lee nadler from uh, dana farber in uh, boston we're going to take a brief break and we will be back uh to, to continue this conversation about lymphoma thanks Your life, your health, your network. Voice America Health & Wellness. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle coworkers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. It attacks the brain, and you might not know what hit you. It's a stroke, and it can cripple or kill you. If suddenly you're numb or weak on one side, limb, or face, it could be a stroke. Get help. There's no time to waste. It could even be a sudden, severe headache without cause. If you wait to get help, time lost is brain lost. Maybe it's a loved one slurring their speech or dizzy. Call 911 and get medical help quickly. There are even more symptoms that I did not mention. So call or hit the web for information and prevention. Blacks have a higher occurrence. Do you want to know more? Call 1-888-4-STROKE or visit www.strokeassociation.org. High blood pressure, diabetes, and obesity. All make the risk of a stroke more likely. But remember, if it happens, do not delay. Or disability might be the price you pay. A public service message brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. 
Welcome back to Friendship Speaking About Cancer. I'm Kim T. Baldo, and in honor of Leukemia and Lymphoma Awareness Month here in September, we have a wonderful panel talking about how to cope medically and emotionally with a lymphoma diagnosis. Dr. Lee Nadler, lymphoma is a cancer that can be curable, but it also comes with a high rate of recurrence. How do you talk to your patients about that very real possibility that their cancer may come back? So I go back to that word that you used, cope. So, you know, it's very important for patients and doctors to understand is the day that a patient gets a diagnosis of that terrible word cancer that Julie used, they take a deep breath and they realize that yesterday they were in control and today they're not. Mm -hmm. They really don't feel they're in control of their life. And so they... They, they try to think about how to do it. And if you listen to what Julie said before, she helped out. She took control. Um, I've always said over the last years to Chuck that I didn't cure him. Julie did. <laughs> and, and, that, and that it was her assuming the control and her standing there like a rock that made all the difference. Well, I think so, those of us who know Julie would agree with that, and we hmm. see so many caregivers who are that rock for the patient. So, so, so. We actually form a team. Um, by the way I describe doctors in the world, and I think patients should go look for this. It's very important. There are two types of doctors, patients who care, doctors who care for patients and those who care about patients. And it's very important to me before, when I meet a patient for the first time that the patient knows that I actually care about them mm-hmm. and their family, and I get to know them, and patients become our families. So when a patient relapses afterwards, it's not a job, it's family. Mm-hmm. And how you actually, because you have to know your patients, you have to know them very well, and you have to know how to deal with it. I had to do something like this recently, and I saw one of my patients who relapsed this morning. And instead of backing off, because it's hard to deal with, and we're trying to think about something very novel to do for her. I get closer. I mean, she calls me whenever she wants to. She knows how. She has my cell phone, as do all my patients. And so, you know, I'm right there. I'm in her support system. So it's extremely important. It doesn't matter how, you know, famous and what you are. It matters that that unit, that team, and the doctor, and it's just not the doctor, um, um, you know, when, when I have a nurse, now I have a physician's assistant, they are right there in part of the team. And everybody understands that we're a unit. So let me, as, an, as a, a quick aside, Dr. Nadler, how do you as a human being cope with that every day? I mean, how do you, you're taking on so much in these, in these relationships. How do you create some balance in your life and, and, and cope with that? <laughs> um, I'm a very lucky person. I got to discover something a very, very long time ago. I don't know if Chuck told you that the antibody that I cleaned up his bone marrow with was called B1. Mm-hmm. B1 was discovered in 1979. Mm-hmm. I named it CD20, and today it's rituxan. Mm-hmm. So I know what we do because we keep fighting mm-hmm. with, new, with new breakthroughs, et cetera. That improved the cure rate 30% for patients. Mm. People don't need bone marrow transplants. So I know that being part of that team and working with patients, I have an opportunity to actually help that patient and the next patient. So um, I get up every morning and I go to bed every night thinking that if I just keep working hard, mm. it won't be as bad tomorrow. Mm. Wow. Kim, I have That's to say, Lee is a pretty remarkable doctor. I mean, it's, it's just 
unbelievable. That's that's fantastic, and I just I love this. I want to go back to that team idea because I love this this team approach with with the, with, with with Chuck as the patient, Julie as the caregiver, Lee and the rest of the medical team there. I mean, I love this team idea that's forming around it. I know also, as I said, you guys have a great strong family, and you know I'm sure that was kind of part of the the support system there. Let let, let me go back to um, you know we're, we we hear a lot today about survivorship and what people face post-treatment. And one of the main things that people talk about, Chuck, is the fear of recurrence and a fear of the disease coming back. And, you know, people tell us, I get a, a cold, I get an ache, I get a pain, I, I immediately think it's the cancer coming back. Uh, again, how, how, do you, how do you deal with that, Chuck? How do, you, how do you cope with that and kind of process that and go on with your day? You know, I, I think it's, you know, time has made it... Um a little less stressful, you know, making our annual trips to uh, Boston for checkups. and um, But there are, you know, the, the first several years, there was a lot more anxiety uh, in, in that regard. But um, uh, although I think it was just uh, five or six years ago, I noticed um, we had found a couple spots on my spine and they wanted to, to kind of monitor it. And I was pretty well freaking out about, yeah. Yeah. you know, the recurrence because I understand the disease that it's slow growing. And so that if there is going it, to, it's, you're never quite safe. But again, I go back to the fact that I did everything I could possibly do. I mean, it, from, in terms of receiving treatment, I had the best support system. I agree with Lee when, you know, I don't think I'd be here uh, if it wasn't for Julie and, and my total uh, support network. And, um, so I feel blessed to just have made it this far, and if it comes back, I'll deal with it, you know, one way or the other. Um, again, I've got confidence in Lee, and so you just try to put it, you, know, you just try to put it aside. Um, it, it comes back on occasion, but um, it's not something that uh, affects my life in a negative way at all. In many respects, it brought a, a clarity and a, um, uh, you know, just. There's a place close to death, I think, where everything becomes so clear. You know, all the things that cloud your vision and judgment just kind of blows away. So there's there's a lot of gifts that came from this experience. And, you know, I kept a journal during my journey, and, and I've, I go back periodically and reread it because there's so many um, treasures and many miracles that occurred during that, that time frame that uh, I don't want to forget about and, and really have, have helped uh, I think, improve the quality of my life. Uh, Julie, you know, Julie, a lot of people tell us that, that uh, you know, having been through a cancer experience or close to a cancer experience, that you do look at life differently, that mm-hmm. it becomes a comes what we call a meaning-making experience, and that, you know, you live your life a little differently. The sky's a little bluer. <laughs> you have a right. little more of a, of a pep in your step. Have you and Chuck made different choices or lived your life a little bit differently as a result of this experience? Well, I think we... You know, definitely feel like we have had bonus time and you look at life in a new way and not take things for granted. But, I mean, we still both get a little nervous around checkup time. I mean, I admit I'm a warrior. It, it probably took me 10 years of checkups before I could relax. But, uh, um, and, uh, but another thing I remember that right after transplant, after treatment was over and, um, Chuck wanted to play beat the clock. Like, I survived that. I'm going to live. I'm going to go, 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 go. And I was so worn out from taking care of him and dealing with it all that I just wanted to dig my feet in and stay home and relax and not do so much. So from a caregiver patient perspective, um, that's the, you know, the big difference there. But I mean, definitely, you know, it's been 
and in, you know, I never thought I'd be able to say this, but it's been an enriching experience. Mm. Uh, difficult, but you know, very enriching. Well, you know, we do we do hear that from a lot of patients, and it becomes a you know, it makes them look at the world in a whole new way, um, and make different choices, and and uh, it just inspires them. Chuck, just we're going to take a break in just a minute, but um, Chuck, I know one of the things that that the experience inspired in you is certainly your involvement with our organization, the Wellness Community. You're now the chairman of our national board of directors. Just um, just tell us for a minute what that what that has meant for you, and and how your own cancer experience inspired that leadership role with us. Well, obviously, I feel blessed to just be here. And, you know, I was, I had the best doctors, I had the best support system, and I feel an obligation to give back. And it's not, but I can tell you, I get so much more joy from, you know, talking with individuals or encouraging them. I mean, the whole concept of the wellness community is about patient active care. And I think all what we've been talking about here is, you know, taking as much control in a situation where you have um, very little control, but, you know, trying to educate about second opinions, get, you know, get involved, uh, build that relationship with your doctor. It's all um, things that, that all of us can be doing in our uh, individual respective cancer journeys. So anytime I have an opportunity to talk with a, with an, a patient one-on-one and share my experience and give them hope, I mean, that's, that does bring me joy. And I, I, I would imagine that just by seeing you, by talking to you, by hearing your, your story, um, I think that in and of itself would give people hope. Yeah, people just like to see me. It's, it's, it's kind of funny. That it's one thing to talk on the phone, but then when they come and they see me and say, you know, gosh, you're, you look pretty normal. <laughs> you, you look know? pretty good. <laughs> you're, you're a 16-year survivor of, of the stage 4 disease. And, I mean, there's little little nuggets of information that, yeah. you know, you can share with them along the way that just, you know, I, I hear so many of them say, gosh, I was thinking the same thing. And yeah. that was so helpful just for you to say that little yeah. little bit. And, well, we're going to just take a, a quick break, and we're going to be right back with Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Hello. Hi, Bill. Uh, this is George Dewey from up the street. Oh, hey, George. How you doing? Good, good. Say, I noticed you've been walking to work these days instead of driving, mm. and I uh, don't quite know how to say this, but, but, but what? But, but your butt, your buttocks, your butt. I think I found your butt on my front lawn. Have you recently lost it? As a matter of fact, I have, George. It's about time someone noticed. Well, it was kind of hard to miss, if you know what I mean. Anyways, would you like it back? Would I like it back? No, not really. So it's okay if I throw it out? Sure, that's fine. Take it easy, George. Small step number eight. Walk instead of driving whenever you can. It's just one of the many small steps you can take to help you become a healthier, well, you. Get started at www.smallstep.gov and take a small step to get healthy. A public service announcement brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. 
Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. For more than 25 years, the wellness community has been the nation's leader in providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at one of our 26 centers in the U.S. and abroad, the wellness community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-WELL or visit us online at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. The Wellness Community, celebrating over 25 years of cancer support, education, and hope. Your life, your health, your network. This is Voice America Health and Wellness. listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Wellness Community, an inspirational program offering the resources you need to live a better life with cancer. Now, here's your host, Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. We're talking about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma today with our panelists, Chuck and Julie Shepard and Dr. Lee Nadler. Chuck, I just want to go back to the discussion before the break. You talked about how you know, you're really active talking about your cancer experience, talking to larger audiences with us, with the wellness community, also talking to people one-on-one. Just take a minute or two to tell us a little bit more about that and, and what that means to you. Well, it's um, anytime, it, it's that period from when you're told they think you have cancer to where you have to make a decision about what to do. There's, I call it the period of fog or, you know, clouds or whatever. And anything that you can do to help a, an individual maybe gain some insight or encourage them, a lot of people are reluctant to get second opinions as an example. And so I, I probe them a little bit about the types of tests they've had. And, you know, if it's somebody who is a non-Hodgkin's um, patient, I feel a little more comfortable asking specific questions. But I think, you know, just any advice you can give and support during that time frame really helps and, you know, it's often that Julie then will talk to the spouse mm-hmm. um, of, of the patient because she's right. I mean, there are things that she can, that the caregiver can't ask the, the patient and but is on their mind. And, and it's it's just so helpful. We kind of do it in, as a tag team. And um, when we get off the phone and, you know, you could spend an hour on the phone with somebody and it yeah. feels like that just went by in, in no time. And But it just, it just lifts your spirit and it, you know, it is part of the payback, I think. And um, as I've said, I'm I'm just blessed to be here. And I had just an unbelievable uh, support system and team that uh, I feel I'm here for a purpose. And I think part of that purpose is uh, helping others get through their challenge. Wow. That's, that's amazing. An amazing way to as you said, kind of pay it forward. Um, Lee, have you, uh, you've seen Chuck in action now <laughs> over these years. Uh, what, what have been your observations about uh, how, he is, how he interacts with these folks and, uh, as a candidate? Well, I, th- I think it's extremely important to, uh, that I share something with you that I shared with Chuck and Julie at the beginning. People who take control, who really want to live and who really try to, you know, do the right thing for themselves and others, 
uh, people who find ways of taking control. It can be exercise. It can be religion. It can be counseling. It can be whatever. Um, they really become new people, and they are my survivors. They are forces of nature. You know, the textbooks say these people would not be alive. Mm-hmm. You know, one one of my patients, Chuck, knows this. It's not. This is not a HIPAA violation. <laughs> um, before Chuck, a patient who had relapsed uh, came to me. He had large cell lymphoma. He was an induction failure. Uh, he was 40 years old. His name is Larry Lucchino. He's the president of the Boston Red Sox. And I take full, full uh, responsibility for two World Series here uh, <laughs> that he won. But, but he always gets up and says, just as Chuck said, it, it made me a different kind of person. I watch. He takes the telephone calls. Chuck takes the calls. And it is a way of giving back, but it is a way of staying in control. Mm-hmm. It is a way of knowing who you are. And so, you know, I always encourage patients to talk to other patients. They are their greatest. It is, it is the greatest gift a patient can give another patient to talk to somebody else who understands. All of us on the other side of the stethoscope, and even Julie, we cannot understand what it is to be the patient. Yeah. But the other patient can reach out, listen, help, encourage, and that is an enormous, enormous gift. Uh, Chuck and Julie are very religious, and it is a religious experience. Yeah. It really is. You're doing God's work, and it really helps other people. You know, Lee, we, um, in the work at the, our work at the wellness community, we always say, you know, the three most common stressors that people with cancer experience are a loss of control, a loss of hope, and a sense of isolation. And that, that what they're going to get when they come to the wellness community is they're going to connect with other people who are going through the same thing. They're going to learn how to take back that control. And they're going to, they're going to find hope. I mean, you know, cancer patients tell me there's nothing more I want to see as a cancer patient than a cancer survivor, than somebody like Chuck who's been through this and come out on the other end and has some good, some good advice and lessons learned. Right. Well, that's, that, that is a message that I've lived my medical life by. I've been doing this a really long time. And, uh, you know, those of us who have the, um, the, the glorious right to be given the right to care for people and then to see later on that what medicine does, because it's not us, it's what the breakthroughs in medicine are and the opportunities um, to watch people live and have their lives, what could be a greater gift? So, Julie, we're going to go into some closing remarks here, but I'm, do you have, uh, Julie, any quick tips, pieces of advice for, for caregivers uh, as, as their loved ones are diagnosed with cancer? Because I know you've been through so much with this. Right. Well, I just think try to do things to keep yourself balanced. I mean, I remember people even years later would come up to me and say, how's Chuck? How's Chuck? How's Chuck? <laughs> and um, it's like, does anybody want to know how I'm doing? And so, um, you know, if you need help, ask for it. People say, oh, what can we do? And, you know, have a list. Be ready if people can help with laundry or cooking or letting you, you know, go out for a few hours to a movie or with friends and um, and trying to find balance in your life, like all the things that you suggested, Lee, whether it's a spiritual or uh, counseling or a support group. Um, I did a lot of journaling also. You know, for the caregiver, it's important to yeah. find ways to help yourself also, and yeah. um, it's 
it's just important to try to keep some balance in your and, life. And, and, you know, we provide all those services, Julie, at the Wellness uh-huh. Community, uh, support groups, face-to-face, online, uh, support groups for caregivers, as well as for uh, for patients. Very uh, important. I, I, I feel like we've had uh, the, the, like, the lymphoma dream team <laughs> on the phone with us here today. I think you guys should take the show on the road. You're, you're all pretty amazing. And I just, I think one of the most important things we've, one of the most important messages here today is that really that team approach, um, you know, takes a village really to, to deal with this disease. And I just, I love everything that you guys have brought to the conversation today. Um, I want to turn to uh, quickly to a portion of our show where we read a question or a comment submitted by one of our local wellness community participants from around the country. Um, we had a submission from Dottie in San Francisco East Bay, and she said that when her husband Andy was diagnosed with prostate cancer, they were both concerned about finding uh, the most qualified urologist. And um, Dottie and Andy were told to check out their wellness community in Walnut Creek. They uh, uh, visited and uh, got some good advice uh, on a surgeon. Um, they uh, The next morning, Andy scheduled an appointment with the doctor and had a successful uh, surgery and really improved his chance of surviving for many more years. So, Dottie, we're so glad that you shared your story with us and happy to hear that all is well with you and Andy. Again, it's not, you know, at the wellness community, you're going to get support, education, hope. You're really going to connect with other people who are going through the same experience. And we just really love the fact that people call into us, they write into us and tell us their their uh, their stories to really share their stories uh, with all of our listeners today. Um, We've, we've had a great episode. I want to thank our wonderful panelists uh, for joining us today and sharing such valuable information. Um, and in honor of September, which is Leukemia and Lymphoma Awareness Month, I'd like to dedicate the show to all people who've been affected by these cancers. Um, in addition to the wellness community, there are many wonderful organizations dedicated to supporting and educating people affected by leukemia and lymphoma. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society uh, provides patient aid. Uh, they have an insurance copay assistance program, support groups, booklets, other resources, um, and you can contact them at LLS Information Resource Center. Uh, at 800-955-4572 or by visiting www.lls.org. There's another group that we work with called the Lymphoma Research Foundation, which is the nation's largest health voluntary organization devoted exclusively to funding lymphoma research and providing patients and healthcare uh, professionals with critical information on the disease. Let's see, for information, uh, visit www.lymphoma.org or you can call their patient helpline at 800-500-9976. Of course, at the wellness community, we have um, 26 centers across the country. We have a whole online uh, community at the wellness community, and you can uh, visit us at www.thewellnesscommunity.org. And again, uh, September is uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Uh, Cancer Awareness Month. There will be more than 75,000 Americans diagnosed with lymphoma this year. Uh, 44,000 new cases of leukemia will be diagnosed in the U.S. in 2008. And um, again, we're glad we've got such wonderful uh, medical doctors, medical oncologists out there uh, treating patients with these diseases. And um, again, great that you know, great that we can share some of the community resources available to people at places like our organization, the wellness community, uh, at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, uh, also at the Lymphoma Research Foundation. So again, I want to thank Chuck and Julie Shepard, Dr. Lee Nadler for joining us uh, on Frankly Speaking About Cancer today. And until next time, be well, do well, live well.
Thank you for joining us for Frankly Speaking About Cancer with your host, Kim Tibaldo. We're here for you every Tuesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. In the meantime, stay connected online at thewellnesscommunity.org. That's thewellnesscommunity.org. 